Good morning and a warm welcome to everyone tuning in. This is Sing with a special edition of ASEAN Speaks. Our focus today will be on inflation and capital markets. As recent inflation data shows higher than expected price pressures, investors are increasingly wary that the US central bank will be forced to reduce its easy money policies and increase interest rates much earlier than planned to curb inflation, which would be a negative move for global capital markets. Today, we are joined by Chuak Bin, co-head of Maybank's macro research team, and Tilan Wickramasinghe, who is Singapore's head of research, to address these concerns and to share their insights. Andy Koo, our regional head of marketing, is also with us on the show. Not only has he sponsored equipment for this studio, which is set up in my home to comply with COVID-19 movement control restrictions, Andy also oversees creatives and production for this podcast channel. So without further ado, let me direct the first question to Hak Bin on commodities. Hagbin, if we first look at recent price trends of commodities, everything from copper to oil to agriculture and particularly niche metals like lithium, cobalt and all the rare that go into electric vehicles and high-end components, it seems like the entire commodities complex has gone up. Is the market headed for a commodity super cycle in your view? Well, I think that's a big question mark. You know, I think um, you know, it's not just commodities, uh, prices are going up, you could say that, no? Almost everything has gone up, right? From uh, digital art to cryptocurrencies to property prices, and it's always hard to distinguish whether um, you know commodity is doing any better, uh, and whether this is just the same phenomenon, uh, this recovery play, because um, you know we're coming out of COVID, and also because of some of the supply chain disruptions, right? This hurting the supplies from semiconductors to you know ships to uh, to some commodities as well. Um, so I'm of the camp that. Kind of, kind of mix on it. I'm, uh, I guess the difference between a super commodity cycle be a price increase that can last for a dec- decade, but I suspect that some of this could, you know, go on for maybe just two, three years. More of a cyclical recovery uh, would be my bet. Uh, but I, the, some of it is driven by the same reason. You know, low interest rates has probably helped to drive some of the price increases, um, which you know encrypts crypto or property. Some of it could be the weaker U.S. dollar, which has just driven up also the you know, the pricing of these commodities. Um, some of it could be inflation hedge. But I guess the key thing to think about whether commodity price increase is whether Biden actually succeeds, I think, in getting his um, $4 trillion, you know, spending plan through. Because half of that will be on infrastructure, you know, from roads to bridges, you know, to power stations. Uh, that could be the key difference. Because what drove the last commodity Super cycle was also China, right? China had going on this binge and yeah, just splurging on infrastructure. And that drove prices up for quite a number of years. So the big question is, will actually Biden go ahead with that plan and to drive the commodity prices beyond this recovery cycle? It sounds like you're in a camp that believes that Biden would not be able to pull off his $2 trillion infrastructure plan, despite his control over Congress. Well, because he doesn't have, uh, you know, very strong majority, right? Yeah, as we, as we know, you know, in the in in the Senate, he's um, just basically on the on the boundary, um, and it's still far from clear that all the Democrats would be in favor because part of the financing that comes from the spending will be from tax increases. So I think that's the controversial part: whether everyone you know, is in the same boat that you know, copper taxes will have to go up. The capital gains will have to go up. Uh, so I think that's a bit more... Everybody agrees on the infrastructure side, but there's less agreement on how to fund it, you know, and who's going to pay for it. 
yeah, so I think it's still uh, it's still a big question mark whether he'll he'll get you know all the all the money spent, and there'll be probably some kind of compromise. It probably won't be that four trillion, right? Right. Uh, plan. So, Hogwin, if the jury is still out, it's probably fair to say that asset dislocations could continue for the medium term. What are the key signposts to monitor for capital markets then? Well, I think the big thing that most uh, investors will be focused on is inflation, in particular um, U.S. inflation, because I guess that's what matters most for the direction of monetary policy in the QE program. Right? Um, U.S. inflation is actually more conditional on wages than it is on food or oil prices, you know, uh, and it's really about services inflation. That, that is a far bigger component of what drives U.S. inflation. Wages seems to be inching up, but it's far from clear that it's going to be a, you know, a big driver of inflation. Um, as we've seen some of, the some of the recent numbers, there's quite a big disagreement on the labor market, right? There were expectations that job growth would be far, far higher, and yet the numbers that came in were far, far lower, right? Is it because of a mismatch? Is it because that of the government schemes being overly generous, especially with unemployment insurance, that most rather would just you know, not bother to work? Or is it many have actually just dropped out of the labor force altogether? So I think the direction of wages is a bit more difficult to figure out. Uh, my sense is that probably it's tight enough and the wages will start increasing you know, in the coming quarters. Uh, and that could drive you know, some of the US inflation close to 3%. And that brings with it the risk that the QE, that the Fed may have to signal that some kind of a QE tapering end of the year that could materialize next year. But markets, of course, react in advance if there is some kind of a tapering, possibly, you know, cutting by 10 billion of the asset purchases a month that could um, trigger some kind of tantrums in the markets. To that point, the signaling effect and timing of the Fed's intent to taper asset purchases will most certainly have an acute impact on capital markets. How high or low is that probability that the Fed will signal by this year? Um, that would be my guess. The actual tapering will happen next year but the signal will come by year-end. Um, and the actual interest rate increases will come even further. My bet will be 2023. So that's a pretty you know, slow and gradual pace. Uh, they're giving a signal way in advance, and you know, markets will have to digest that. And it also shows that though inflation is um, pretty high, they're not going to respond aggressively to it. You know, they're quite willing to allow inflation to you know, stay above the 2% you know, for, for a considerable period. Uh, but still, I don't think they can completely dismiss the risk you know, of inflation and it's part of the normalization of the economy. Thanks, Hakbin. I'm now going to direct my next question to Tilan. And here, I'd like to spend some time on funds flow and its impact on stock markets. Tilan, when you observe funds flow within ASEAN, the key observation last year was that retail turnover was the dominant driver of stock market performance in ASEAN as opposed to institutional flows. Do you see evidence that foreign flows are now slowly returning back? Yeah, that's an interesting question. If you look at 2020, for every $100 of the STI uh, sold by INSTI in investors, retail investors actually bought 140 But so far this year, we do see INSTI investors coming back with buying activity picking up, especially uh, from around the second half of April. Interestingly, a lot of the buying is still focused on the banks, uh, consumer cyclicals, as well as healthcare. They're continuing to sell the REITs, consumer non-cyclicals, as well as some of the industrials. Uh, 
On the other hand, we see the retail investors. They've been buying telcos, they've been buying REITs as well as the property developers. Tillon, on the spectre of high inflation and interest rates, this, I believe, has an inverse relationship with many types of instruments, especially real estate investment trusts. Can you share with us your outlook of the Singapore REIT sector? Absolutely. I mean, I think you can't, there are many shades of REITs. So you have the industrial REITs, the, the hospitality REITs, um, and the office REITs, uh, and the retail REITs. So I think all of them will um, perform differently. Uh, depending on the inflation outlook. Uh, we are generally still overall neutral to slightly positive on the REIT sector. We don't think the drivers that, uh, the, the traditional drivers of interest rates going up alone will impact performance. I mean, if you look at even this year, some of the um, some of the more industrial REITs have actually done pretty well. And I think largely that is because dividend visibility, the yield with DPU visibility has increased um, for particular sectors of REITs. Um, for Sectors like office, uh, hospitality, obviously the prognosis is a lot more dimmer as we go forward. Now, when we take a helicopter view of the region, Singapore and Vietnam are two notable markets that have pulled ahead of the pack in terms of performance. Can you give us some colour what is driving performance for the Singapore market? Yeah, so Singapore has definitely been one of the better performers this year. The STI is up around 10% year to date, pretty much the same as the S&P. Uh, at the early part of the year, some of the revival was from growth stocks. Singapore has a large tech and semiconductor subsector, uh, as well as consumer cyclicals uh, such as Wilma, that has been benefiting from the China revival. Uh, growth stocks have outperformed value stocks around 66% year to date, when pre-COVID the performance was pretty much the same. But if you look at more recent strength, we do see a rotation from growth to value. Remember, the STI is largely a value index. So when we look, and we have seen uh, sectors such as the banks, property developers, telcos, transport, all re-rating. The current COVID spike in Singapore notwithstanding, we think that the rotation to value will continue. Uh, GDP growth expectations for Singapore is very high. Uh, and is doing a pretty credible job in terms of the vaccine rollouts, uh, and especially compared to all the uncertainty around the region. So earnings visibility for Singapore should become a lot more clearer as we go forward this year. Now, what I described was more the fundamental drivers for STI's performance. We think there's also a thematic driver in play, and the theme is restructuring, especially the GLCs. We saw that the announcements from Capital Land, uh, SPH, uh, Jardine, they were they're all re looking to restructure their businesses, spinning off business units, privatize. So we think there is potentially more to come, uh, particularly names like Keppel, Singtel, Semmarine. I think there's still a lot more potential for them to unlock value. And I think investors are getting uh, p positioning themselves ahead of that. Tilan, you wear many hats. And as you are also a regional sector head of research for banks, are Singapore banks still in pole position relative to the region in terms of valuation and its performance outlook? 
Yes, I, I just hold on one second as I, as I change my hats. Uh, in the first quarter results season, um, we saw all three banks uh, deliver very, very strong beats. Um, I think the last time we saw all three do that in one quarter was around the third quarter of 2009 when they were just coming out of the GFC. Now, remember at that time, uh, the banks in Singapore had uh, almost two years of sustained re-rating after that. So if you look at the first quarter results, we saw growth coming from trading as well as loan loss allowances falling. But we also saw some very strong underlying growth drivers picking up as well. NIMS are bottomed. Uh, banks are reporting very strong loan demand for the rest of the year. Uh, interest rates are still low, so I think segments such as wealth management will start to uh, will remain strong and will actually start to accelerate. Uh, asset quality is coming a lot better than what any of us expected even a few few months ago. So I think for the banks, from an operational and asset quality point of view, uh, they are in a very strong position. Regionally, there's COVID resurging. There's still quite a bit of loan moratoriums, particularly in countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, which clouds the overall outlook for these banks. So we think that the Singapore banks offer an early cycle recovery play, while I think the rest of the region, particularly the higher growth markets like Indonesia, the Thailand, Philippines, uh, will be a more late cycle play, uh, similar to what we saw with the GFC time as well. Considering these differences that you had just flagged, it's also very interesting to note that Asset quality differs quite a fair bit. Singapore banks' NPL ratios are below 2%, while regional peers hover between, you know, anywhere between 2 to 4%. Why is that the case and will the gap stay wide? Yeah, so I, mean, I think a large part of that is thanks to the sort of government stimulus programs that were put in place very early on in the cycle. Uh, we did see uh, both fiscal and monetary policy coming in in Singapore very aggressively to, uh, to, to help companies as well as keep liquidity uh, from freezing up. So I think that uh, helped significantly. Uh, a lot of the regional countries could not match that level of, um, of support in a way, uh, for their domestic systems. Um, but I think also, I, I, I think the other uh, area that we really need to focus on is the loan moratoriums and the restructuring. Um, across the region, uh, while we have seen in Singapore the moratorium loans have been coming off significantly, we are now down to about 3% uh, of loans for the three local banks or even less, uh, while for the region there's still quite a bit of moratorium loans that are in place. So there is still quite a lot of shadow NPLs that are there and how the overall economic growth recovery, how borders reopen, uh, what additional stimulus that these regional governments can bring in will certainly determine um, how, you know, the overall impact of NPLs for some of these markets. Uh, if we could just take one final question on Singapore banks and their asset quality. The three banks are not equals as well. In the latest set of results, DBS and UOB's NPLs have improved while OCBC kind of stayed unchanged. What are your thoughts uh, uh, on this? I think it's very small, the, the differentials. Um, I think if you look at all three, though, um, the new NPL creation, which is something that I pay a lot of attention to, um, has significantly dropped between 50 to 60% versus what it was 
in 2020. Um, so I think it's also partly to do with how the loan mix um, uh, is for the different banks. Uh, DBS is significantly more North Asia, um, and they have uh, significantly large corporates in Singapore. OCBC has a similar sort of mix, but they are still still exposed to the offshore and marine sector more than the other two banks, which is probably why you see a slightly slower improvement. But I think overall, um, the trend is for improvement. Um, and I think as loan growth starts to pick up as well, which is the denominator for NPL, for the NPL ratio, you'll start to see better improvements coming through for the rest of the year. Thanks for your insights, Tilan. Uh, now let me turn the focus back on Hakpin. Last Friday, April US payrolls came in much weaker than expected at about 260,000 versus the 1 million that markets were expecting. This unevenness in labour supply is a paradox, as you mentioned, given the reopening of markets and you know, fuels more debate on the actual strength of the GDP recovery uh, and issue of wage inflation. Where is the labour force? And are these just transitory patterns in your view? So there seems to be, a, you know, some argument about why the job numbers were so weak. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you have you know, some like Larry Summers will argue that um, that there's actually a shortage, you know, and some workers have perhaps dropped out of the labour force. Uh, there's also a mismatch issues. Uh, there are also some who argue that the government's insurance programmes were just too generous and that yeah, the payouts, uh, at the current payout, you know, it, there's no motivation for some workers to go back to work. So it, it could be temporary and when the insurance payments start drying out, you know, in the, in the third quarter, more of them will be willing to... Uh, find a job. Uh, some could be just it's temporary and then the job recovery uh, will come back because as you said, the impact has been uneven. A lot of SMEs, the smaller companies are the ones that create jobs. Um, they're the ones hardest hit and it could take a bit of uh, time for them to restart again. So we'll see because one interesting, um, even though the job numbers uh, did come in weaker, um, there was wage growth. And actually, if you analyze that wage growth, I think it's in our high single-digit numbers. So, so that's another figure to watch as well. Hagben, in your latest thematic research titled Migration Shocks and Donut Effects, you flagged that inflation poses different sets of challenges for different ASEAN countries. In Singapore, the real estate sector may be one to watch. The combination of low rates, work-from-home trends, and migrant workers returning home are leading households to spend on new homes. Does this imply sticky inflation for Singapore and what are its implications on the Sing dollar? So I guess there are a couple of different angles, you know. I mean, what enters into the consumer basket is not actually property prices, actually property rents, right? So if property prices were going up but rents were actually going down, it would still be a deflationary impact. Uh, but I think what's curious is that rents have actually started climbing since about April last year, April, May, despite, you know, the sort of this lockdown, sort of this the pandemic hit and all that. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting paradox because why are rents going up when the labour force lost 160,000 jobs last year, of which 180,000 were actually foreigners, including expats who some left town, right? So, um, so I think that's a different story. But basically, uh, on the inflation side, you know, on the property prices, it really depends what you think is driving it, right? Because some property price increases, the government might feel the need to step in to contain the increase. 
especially if it's driven by leverage or speculation. But I think most of the evidence is actually showing that, first of all, it's not foreigners that's driving it up. You know, that actually the proportion of upgraders is the ones that's driving the, the demand. So I think, uh, so from that point of view, well, upgrading is good, right? It's, it's meeting the needs of Singaporeans who want to, you know, a bigger place, a better place, you know, an upgrade, perhaps for family reasons, perhaps for school reasons. Second, when you look at the leverage, it's very hard to argue that it's a, from, a, from a financial stability point of view that is risky because mortgage growth have just turned positive after being negative for almost three years. So household debt is actually well in control and far below the highs of the 90%, you know, that was reached, uh, I think, in the early 2001s. So, and then when you look at the cost side, it's not as if the developers are having a windfall because the margins have been under pressure, in part because of the government measures, but also because of construction costs. You know? So at the replacements, I think the replacement cost of a property has actually gone up as well you know, because of all the pandemic, the you know, social distancing measures and so on. Uh, and of course, now we have all the delays that's coming in, right? From all the project delays, whether it's HDB that are forcing people because they, they, they don't have the homes to live into or move into, and so they start renting first. So I think all this is kind of, you know, um, driving some of the property price increases and so on, which doesn't seem to call for a policy response, in my view, in terms of prudential measure. Uh, most of it is, I think, it's still working pretty well. Uh, and it really, I think, it needs to be addressed on the supply side. How to get the property projects being built to be delivered, right? To be finished, to release more land, and to, to address the, the needs, you know, for those who need to buy a property. All right, Hakwing, thank you so much for that sharing. Tillan, let me now direct the last question to you before we close the show. Singapore banks have performed well, as we've discussed. Where are we now in the sector's upcycle and its valuation range? I mean, it's hard to say how long the cycle will last. I mean, as I said, I think when we looked at the post-GFC cycle, uh, the banks had a pretty clear runway for about two years, um, and valuations uh, on a price-to-book basis reached about one two standard deviations above mean. I mean, if you look at today, the banks are trading at around, you know, uh, almost below mean still. Most of them are trade OCBC and UOB are trading at book. Uh, DBS is slightly above that. Um, so I think, you know, even if they uh, trade up to mean, I think there's still quite a bit of runway to go. If you look at our target prices for both UOB and OCBC, um, which we have buys on, we are only looking at them trading up to mean. For DBS, we are looking at it trading to about one standard deviation above mean. And the reason, I think, for DBS, where the mean is a little bit lower, um, is because, you know, it has had a history of, you know, acquisitions and things like that. Um, so when I look at DBS, I only really look at the valuation of the last 10 years when you actually did see DBS restructuring and actually becoming the bank that it is today. So I think valuations are still cheap. I think there's still quite a few other catalysts to come into play. I think the MAS uh, most likely we'll start to relax some of the dividend caps that are in place. So we should start to see a boost coming in from dividend yields. Uh, we think uh, given the fact that the, the significant amount of 
allowances the banks put in, the, uh, the significant amount of provisions the banks put in throughout 2020, a lot of them are sitting on a few billion dollars of management overlays. So I think there can be um, uh, potential for some of these management overlays to also be released uh, and written back. So I think the, the growth trajectory uh, from an operational point of view is also very clear, and I think there are some positive catalysts also down the road. Thank you so much, Tilan. Well, we've come to the end of the podcast, and I would like to take the opportunity to thank you both for your participation and insights. Before we end the show, Andy has an important announcement to make. Thanks, Seng Hello, everyone. Maybank Kiming will be hosting our Southeast Asia flagship conference series, Invest ASEAN 2021, from June to August. The theme of the event, ASEAN Rising, the next decade, will focus on 10 conversations about the future of ASEAN from the lens of the region's regulators, industry titans, and thought leaders. Our first episode will be held on June 3rd, three weeks from now, actually, and our guest speaker is Dr. Tan Kong Yam, who is a professor of economics at the Nanyang Technological University. Together with our senior economists, Dr. Chua Hak Bin, they will be focusing on the US-China rivalry and the new geopolitics in ASEAN. We invite you to join us and register at the Maybank Kimeng's LinkedIn page.